I'm reading from the Epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians, chapter 5, beginning at the 16th verse. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of the which I tell you before, as I have told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. In this series of sermons, I'm contrasting the works of the flesh with what Paul refers to as the fruit of the Spirit. So far in our study, we have seen that the fruit of the Spirit can only be produced in those who have been born again. The fruit of the Spirit can only be produced in the Christian because the Holy Spirit lives in the Christian and He produces these characteristics. No amount of human effort can ever bring about these traits because they are supernatural endowments. On the other hand, the works of the flesh are produced quite naturally in every human being. When St. Paul uses the word flesh in this passage. He is talking about human nature controlled and dominated by sin. We are all born with this nature. When human nature is controlled by sin, we have certain cravings, certain desires, which Paul refers to as the lusts of the flesh. These lusts of the flesh are sinful desires that originate in this nature controlled by sin. When people yield themselves to these desires, they become works of the flesh. These sinful desires find expression in our thoughts, words, and deeds. So beginning in verse 19, the Apostle Paul begins to list some of these works of the flesh. He mentions 15 works of the flesh, 17, if you're using the King James Version. But there are many more than these. The sins mentioned here are a good summary of what Paul describes as works of the flesh. Following the lead of some New Testament scholars, it would seem that we can separate this list into four groups. Using William Hendrickson's commentary on Galatians, we could group the sins under four headings. The first one, immorality, which would include adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. The second would be idolatry, which would include, of course, idolatry and witchcraft. The third group, rivalry, which would include hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders. And the last group, inebriety, which would include drunkenness and revelings. The first group of sins mentioned are sexual in nature. It's not unusual for the Apostle Paul to mention sexual sins in his lists that describe the sinfulness of the world. 
Paul was a Jew, and to most Jews of his time, the dominant characteristic of the Gentile world seemed to be sexual license, uncontrolled sexual desire. Though the Jews looked down upon the rest of the world for its bondage to sexual sin, a cursory reading of the scriptures reveals that the Jews were not free from these sorts of sins either. But it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul would begin his list of the works of the flesh with sexual sin, since these sins had dominated the previous lives of believers before they had come to know Christ. It's also easy to see why there is so much emphasis on sexual sin in Scripture, because there is no desire of human beings that can be perverted so insanely as this desire. Now, there's nothing wrong with sexual desire. God created human beings with these desires, and there's nothing sinful about them. As a matter of fact, the normal sexual desire between a man and a woman is celebrated in Scripture. We have a whole book of the Bible, the Song of Solomon, that celebrates this expression of love. So these sexual desires are a gift from God. But the only way that God has given us to fulfill those desires in accordance with his will is within the context of marriage between one man and one woman. If we ignore God's law on this matter and give in fully to unbridled sexual desires, human beings will twist the natural sexual desire to do that which is contrary to nature. For example, you would think that God would not need to give a commandment to human beings that they should not have sex with animals. Nevertheless, God had to give this commandment to his own people in Leviticus 18.23. Neither shalt thou lie with any beast to defile thyself therewith. Neither shall any woman stand before a beast to lie down thereto. It is confusion. It should go without saying that human beings should not have sexual relations with animals. But when human beings give in completely to their sexual desires without restraint, such aberrant behaviors begin to abound. So in this list, St. Paul lists those kinds of sins which would be classified as works of the flesh. In the King James Version, this list begins with adultery. Now, the oldest and best manuscripts do not contain that word. Paul may have begun the list with the word fornication. But since adultery is a form of fornication, I'll go ahead and begin with this issue of adultery, especially since one of the Ten Commandments is, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Adultery has been defined as sexual relations in which at least one participant is married to someone else. For example, a man, married or unmarried, who has sexual relations with the wife of another man has committed adultery. Also a married man who has had sexual relations with any woman other than his wife. The man and the woman both have committed adultery. A married woman who has sexual relations with any man other than her husband has committed adultery, as has the man. An unmarried woman who has sexual relations with a married man has committed adultery, and so has the man. The next, or perhaps first in the list, is fornication. 
Now, in some translations, you'll see this word translated simply as sexual immorality. The Greek word for fornication is pornia, from which we get such words as pornography. Fornication is a word that can refer to various sexual sins that are prohibited by God's law. The word fornication can refer to a sexual relationship outside of marriage between a man and a woman. In one of his conversations with the Jews, they said to Jesus, We be not born of fornication. We have one Father, even God. Now, to be born of fornication would mean that a person had been born as the result of a sexual union that had occurred outside the marriage relationship of a man and a woman. There may even be an implication here that Jesus was born of fornication, indicating that there may have been rumors circulating about how Jesus was conceived before Mary and Joseph came together. Fornication was also used to describe having sexual relations with a prostitute. The word for prostitute is a form of this word pornia. St. Paul writes, What, know ye not, that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. In this particular passage, fornication is simply having sex with a prostitute. Another example of fulfilling sexual desire outside the confines of marriage. But as I've said, fornication could refer to any sexual relationship outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. When Paul discusses marriage, he says that if a man has the gift of being able to live without a wife, he should do so in order that he might give all his attention to the Lord's work. But he realizes that this desire is so strong that many people cannot deny themselves. What is Paul's solution for those who cannot live the single life? Marriage. He offers no other sexual outlet. St. Paul writes, Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Paul realizes that the sexual passions are strong. If people are not married, they may seek to fulfill those passions outside of marriage, a fulfillment which is sinful. Therefore, marry, so that you will not fulfill those desires outside of the only way that God permits those desires to be fulfilled. St. Paul goes on to say, For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. The Apostle Paul realizes that not every person has the gift of being able to remain single. He knows that the sexual passion burns like a fire within people, and if they don't marry, eventually 
they may not be able to contain themselves, as he says here, and they will fulfill these desires outside of marriage. So Paul says that it is better to marry than to fall into this sin of fornication. So fornication would include any sexual relationship outside of marriage, whether premarital or extramarital. I know that we live in a time when we're told that it is impossible, especially for young people to obey this commandment. And it is very difficult. Whenever you combine the natural biological urge with human nature controlled by sin and encouraged by our culture, it is very difficult indeed to abide by this commandment. We're told that this sexual urge is too strong for people, especially for young people. We're told that this sexual urge is too strong for them to deny gratification in this area. First, it's not impossible. It seems strange that we have reached a time when people are ready to admit that when it comes to sex, they are slaves and have no free will. And I would say that when non-Christians yield to these desires, it's not surprising. Since the person has a nature that is controlled and dominated by these lusts and works of the flesh. Whenever people give in to these kinds of sins, sometimes they say, I can't help it. I was born this way. And they are right. They are born with a nature that is controlled and dominated by sin. So it's not really surprising whenever people who are controlled and dominated by sin who are slaves to it, fall into these kinds of sins. It is only by coming to Christ and being born again that we can overcome these sins of the flesh. And so for Christian young people, those who have the Holy Spirit, you must deny yourself and refuse to have sexual relations before marriage. It may be a difficult commandment to obey, especially when our culture puts so much pressure on you to fulfill these desires of the flesh, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, it can be done. Millions of Christian young people have denied themselves in this way throughout the history of the church, and you can do the same. Remember that one of the basic commandments of Christ is, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Christian is to practice self-denial in every area of life. You can deny yourself until marriage for the sake of Jesus Christ. Virginity is an extremely important concept in Holy Scripture. I've often heard young people say, you can't show me a single verse in the Scriptures that forbids sex before marriage. Now listen, hear me well. Every verse of Scripture in the Bible forbids premarital sex because the whole Bible is the story of how God chooses a people to be a bride for his son and that bride is a pure virgin. St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11 too, for I am jealous over you with godly jealousy for I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. This was always the expectation of the people of God throughout the scriptures. 
that when a young woman came to be married, she would come as a virgin. The chaste virgin who has kept herself pure for her husband is the picture of the church who is to be kept pure for her husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 25 through 27, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. St. Paul goes so far as to say, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Thus marriage between a man and a woman is a picture of the marriage between Christ and his church. Virginal purity is the picture of the bride of Christ, the church. A bride in her white wedding dress is the picture of the spotless virgin bride of Christ to be presented to him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. We read that description in Revelation 19, beginning at verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he saith unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. Of course, it should go without saying that extramarital sex is forbidden by the law of God. It is a violation, as I said earlier, of God's law for a married man to have a sexual relationship with any other woman. Whether the other woman is married or unmarried, it's a violation of God's law for a woman to have a sexual relationship with a man other than her husband, whether the other man is married or unmarried. Such relationships tear marriages apart, cause lifelong emotional scars, and destroy families, resulting in untold psychological distress and harm, especially when children are involved. Needless to say, for the Christian, it would be an act of utter selfishness for anyone to defile the covenant relationship between a man and a woman solemnized in marriage. Just as virginity is a picture of the bride of Christ who has kept herself pure, fidelity in marriage is the picture of the faithfulness of the church to her husband. Throughout the scriptures, God compares his relationship to his people to that relationship that exists between husband and wife. When Israel was unfaithful to God, that sin was described in terms of marital infidelity. The faithfulness of a woman to her husband is the picture of the faithfulness of the church to Christ. And the faithfulness of the husband is the picture of the faithfulness of Christ to his church who never breaks his covenant promises to her. As you can see, sexual immorality destroys the beautiful picture of how marriage is a symbol of the relationship between Christ and his church. A man who lures a woman into a sexual relationship is committing a sin. He is also leading the woman into sin. And if she is married, he is committing a horrible sin against her husband. As St. Paul puts it in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 6, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain 
from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Having a sexual relationship with a woman who is married is defrauding a brother. It's a sin against the husband of the woman, and God threatens to take vengeance on those who would commit such a dishonorable act. Now the next word that Paul uses in this list is uncleanness. This word for uncleanness is a word that referred to any kind of ceremonial impurity. As we know, there were many ways in the Old Testament that could make a person unclean in the sense of not being able to have fellowship with other people or worship God until they had been ritually cleansed. So in a sense, uncleanness could refer to any kind of moral impurity, not just sexual sin. But when Paul uses the word uncleanness, he very often uses it in connection with sexual sin. He does so in this list in Galatians 5, as we've seen. Also in Ephesians 5, 3, he writes, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints. In Colossians 3, 5, he writes, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And in the passage we looked at earlier where Paul teaches the Thessalonians to abstain from fornication, he concludes his argument by saying, For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. So what is the connection between fornication and uncleanness? The word for uncleanness here was used to describe filth of any kind. It was used to describe a person who was just physically dirty. So this word uncleanness took on the meaning of sordid. And this is what sin always does to the sexual act. What was designed to be a pure and beautiful expression of love between a man and a woman in marriage, outside of marriage, is turned into something foul and disgusting. Many years ago, when I was a teenager, my parents and I took a trip to New Orleans, and we walked down Bourbon Street. Having never been to New Orleans, we were unprepared for what we were about to see. Finally, after walking down Bourbon Street for a while, my dad said, This is just nasty. And this is what sin does. Sin always turns God's beautiful blessings into something that is unclean, defiled. The next word that St. Paul uses in this list is lasciviousness. Again, it's a word that is used with a broad number of meanings, but again, St. Paul uses it frequently in connection with sexual sin, especially the uncleanness that we've just studied. For example, St. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 21, And lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and lasciviousness which they have committed. Again, we see this trio of fornication, uncleanness, and lasciviousness. 
Paul joins lasciviousness with uncleanness again in Ephesians 4.19. Who being past feeling have given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The word lasciviousness is often translated in modern Bible versions as sensuality. It was a word that was used to describe unrestrained indulgence of the senses. As such, sex is not the only activity that could be described as sensual indulgence. Drunkenness or drug addiction could be described in that way as well. But since Paul is using it so frequently in connection with fornication, the word in Galatians 5.19 once again appears to be in reference to unbridled sexual license. There was a time when people were described as being wanton, meaning sexually unrestrained. And that's certainly the meaning in Ephesians 4.19 when he says that people outside of Christ have given themselves over unto lasciviousness. They have totally abandoned themselves to their sexual desires without any discipline or self-control. That was the characteristic of the world in Paul's day. And nothing has changed. It's strange that modern man thinks that the sign of his modernity is that he is sexually unrestrained, sexually free. That is not a mark of modernity. That kind of unrestrained behavior is as ancient as the human race. And it always results in disaster. This is where we are in our culture. We have reached the point where we are almost totally unrestrained in our sexual behavior. In short, American culture worships the goddess of sex. And she promises totally unrestrained sexual behavior. The laws of our land support even churches and Christian people have twisted the scriptures to legitimize unrestrained sexual license even in the name of Jesus Christ. But such people are not worshiping Christ. They have simply turned him into an ancient fertility god. Our nation is so obsessed with sex and nothing but sex that it shows itself even in the very words we use. Isn't it strange that all the profanity that is spoken in our culture most of the profane words have something to do with sex. Since sex is all that we have on our minds, no wonder it shows up in almost every word that we say. Now, since St. Paul preaches so much against sexual sin, many people have accused the apostle as having some kind of obsession, fear, or neurosis about sex. But we need to remember that a great deal of the Old Testament, especially the Law of Moses, dealt with sexual sin. And again, many people put forth the idea that the Jews as a whole had some kind of morbid fixation about the sinfulness of sexual desire. However, as we have seen, the Bible actually looks upon the sexual desire between a man and a woman fulfilled in marriage as a beautiful and wonderful thing. But if you look at the history of human beings, it's easy to see why the scriptures speak so much about sexual sin. There's probably no other kind of sin that can have such disastrous consequences for human beings than this. Our whole nation is reaping the consequences of what happens 
when a people as a whole throw away God's law and engage in unbridled sexual promiscuity. All of our difficulties concerning teen pregnancy, single-parent families, the destruction of the family, abortion, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, prostitution, sexually transmitted diseases, human trafficking, pedophilia, pornography, sexual exploitation of minors, divorce, and a whole host of other ills can all be traced back to our refusal to obey God's law in this matter. And God has a solution. One man, one woman in marriage, but our culture says, no, we will not have it that way. We are going to have unlimited sexual freedom. Therefore, even though we have these problems, we'll try to find another solution rather than God's solution. And there is no solution other than God's solution. So when we look at all the pain and misery that is caused by our abandonment of God's law in this matter, we can see that God does not give us detailed commandments about sexual behavior to kill our joy, but rather to prevent our misery. These commandments are for our own good. As I close, I would like to return to the idea of marriage being a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. I mentioned the Song of Solomon as a book that describes this intense love that exists between a man and a woman. Many people have seen the Song of Solomon as a picture of the love between Christ and the church or Christ and the soul of the individual believer. I used to think these preachers were stretching things a bit when they tried to treat the Song of Solomon in this way. But when you understand that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, then a case can be made that the Song of Solomon does in some way describe the joy and intimacy that exists between Christ and his church. Charles Spurgeon loved to preach on the Song of Solomon. He preached over 60 sermons on this book of passionate poetry. And some of his sermons were collected into a volume called the most holy place. Spurgeon believed that the relationship we have with Christ is just as holy and sacred as the intimacy between husband and wife. We know from reading the scriptures how much Christ loves the church. We know how much the church loves her Lord. What words can we use to describe this love? What words can we use to describe the bliss of union, the happiness of being one with Christ? The closest we can come is by describing the joy of the union between a man and a woman in marriage. Do you see now how sin destroys that picture? In these days, when I say that marriage is the picture between Christ and his church, surely most people want to laugh. A wedding is no longer a symbol of purity. Marriages are not filled with joy. Marriages are not pictures of the faithfulness that husband and wife show to one another. One is tempted to throw away the picture of marriage as the symbol of Christ in his church and choose something else. When we allowed the works of the flesh to deform and twist God's gift of sexual desire and to spoil the beauty of marriage, we lost one of our most wonderful pictures of the relationship between Christ and his people. Let us return to the old paths 
let us teach our children the beauty and value of purity. Let us teach them of the glories and wonders of covenant faithfulness. And let marriage between a man and a woman once again be the story of the eternal romance between Christ and his church. Amen.